This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. After a deadly incident, horrible video, uh, Ohio State Fair, where a man was killed on a ride called the Fireball uh, at, at various amusement parks around the United States and was scheduled to come up here to the CNE, where, uh, CNE, where we understand it, uh, it will not be a part of now. Uh, it's caused other parks, to, uh, as I mentioned, to opt out. To talk more about all of this, Lewis Smith is with us, Communication and Media Coordinator, Canadian Safety Council, and he is with us now. Hello, Lewis. How are you today? Hey, Scott. I'm doing well. Thanks. Yourself? Thanks for, uh, good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, obviously, uh, this time of year, we hear of these odd accidents and uh, I, I'm sure uh, lots of people out there wondering if uh, you know what the standard is and, and how do we make sure that these sorts sorts of things are safe here uh, have you been getting a lot of inquiries regarding this sort of thing yeah especially after this most recent incident in Ohio it's definitely at the forefront of a lot of Canadians minds you know people go out there to have fun they go out there to uh, take their minds off things and have a good relaxing afternoon with the family so when you hear about fatalities obviously it makes you wonder. It makes you uh, concerned as to whether it's something that could happen over here or not. And can it? How can Canadians be sure that they're safe? Well, the good news for Canadians is that our regulations are a lot stricter than down in the States. Uh, each province uh, is mandated uh, governmentally to handle any kind of inspections, uh, whereas down in the States, uh, also mandated by state, but there are some states that don't have any governmental insight, oversight whatsoever. So in those cases, we're talking about private contractors. We're talking about cases where, you know, the regulations may be a bit more lax or a bit more inconsistent across the board. Uh, up here in Canada, we've got some of the strongest regulations uh, for making sure that mechanical issues are addressed quickly and efficiently. Uh, so uh, is this all governed through a federal body? How much leeway does the province have? Do we still have patchwork throughout various provinces? No, it, it's entirely mandated through the province, so there's no, there's no federal oversight. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most cases, it's uh, mandated by the provincial government. Uh, the exception is Ontario, where it's handled by the Technical Standards and Safety Administration. Uh, so that's a group specifically dedicated to making sure that these kind of issues are resolved before uh, tragedy strikes. So it's safe to say that we have one standard that goes across all provinces then? Uh, we have standards for each province. Uh, right now they're trying to harmonize it, trying to make it more cohesive across the board, but as a general rule, the baseline is fairly standard across the board. So what are the rules and, and regulations in regarding these these sorts of rides? Um, uh, obviously there's, or, or is there, I don't know, uh, you know, a setup that's different for something that's permanent, like a Wonderland or a Disneyland, as opposed to something that's traveling, uh, you know, doing the fair circuit. I, I don't know. What What is the process? Well, on the roaming uh, amusement parks, which I gather was the, the type of uh, park in Ohio where this incident happened, uh, there are staff on board whose sole responsibility is ensuring the mechanical uh, workings are, you know, working correctly. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, provincial inspectors have to inspect the rides before the, far, the fair or the amusement park opens up. So that means that if it's traveling from Ontario to Quebec to New Brunswick, the Ontario government inspects in Ontario, the Quebec government inspects in Quebec, the New Brunswick government inspects in New Brunswick. So there's a lot of oversight and a lot of uh, ensuring that things are working right on those mobile ones. Uh, as far as more permanent fixtures like Canada's Wonderland or La Ronde in Montreal, uh, those are also handled in-house. There's a very large uh, amount of staff whose sole responsibility, again, is making sure that these rides are working properly. 
and there's also regular visits by governmental bodies, uh, oftentimes not announced because they don't want the opportunity to, you know, make things appear presentable. They really want to drop in and make sure that it's always safe at all times. Uh, some assume that one is safer than the other. Is one safer than the other, meaning a mobile versus something that's there all the time? It's hard to tell, you know, Scott. Uh, by nature of it, uh, a mobile park will tend to disassemble and reassemble rides more often. So that comes with a positive and a negative. Because on the one side, you know, the, more, the more assembly and disassembly you do, the more likely there is to be wear. But on the other side... The more assembly and disassembly you do, the more likely you are to spot a problem as it occurs rather than, you know, a few days down the road. So there's really a a mixed opinion on that, but I think the stat bears it out that uh, since 1998, there have been no fatalities at amusement parks at all in Canada. So really, as far as safety goes, there's no real bad uh, answer to that. So so you're confident that even the inspections that go on on these rides uh, on a daily basis, uh, and I mean, you know, what defines uh, inspection? How extensive would they be? Uh, That is specific to each provincial uh, legislation. Uh, So I'm not sure exactly to what detail or to what level of insight needs to go into that kind of thing. Uh, But typically it's fairly thorough. Uh, you know, you want to inspect any kind of fastenings to make sure they're all tight. You want to make sure there's no loose metal or loose boards. Uh, really, anything that can cause a safety uh, issue is regularly inspected. What about the training of staff and the people that are, you know, putting you on and off these? Sometimes it's summer students, um, you know, again, uh, well, let's leave it at that. What, is, what about the training for staff? Well, you know, Scott, you hit the nail right on the head. That's really what needs to be uh, the most important aspect of staffing is the training. And uh, as I say, in Canada, we're lucky. We don't have very many uh, injuries, let alone fatalities. Uh, in 2015, in Ontario, we had 556 injuries province-wide. Uh, so any kind of training that these staff are getting is clearly being put to good use because uh, the numbers bear it out. Again, we're, we're just not a very, uh, a very injury-heavy populace here. So it, it's an indication that staff are doing the right thing and getting proper training. Uh, have you heard anything in regarding to uh, this ride, uh, the fireball? I mean, has it been involved in any other situations? Uh, what do we know about that? Uh, well, from what we do know from the incident in Ohio, uh, it does seem to be a bit of a freak occurrence. Uh, I can't comment on specifics, of course, because the, the details haven't been officially released yet. But uh, from what it appeared... Uh, the reports are that it was inspected three or four times before opening the park and that they did shut down other rides that were deemed to be too unsafe. So I think it's a great idea that the, the uh, CNE is shutting down that ride uh, along with other amusement parks who are following suit because until we know the solution, it just doesn't make sense to hope that it doesn't happen again. Uh, was it mandated to uh, close these rides down? You mentioned other fairs, including the CNEs, not going to uh, have it this year until they get to the bottom of what's going on. Was that mandated, or is that just the suggestion of the come from the suggestion of the fairs that they're doing this? Uh, I do know in Ohio it was mandated by the state. Uh, up here in Canada, uh, depending on various amusement parks, it may have been uh, mandated by some parent companies, but I do know a lot of. Uh, theme parks are doing this voluntarily. Uh, and any reason to be concerned about any other ride? Is Do you think this is a ride issue? Do you think this is an inspection issue? I think this case might have been an inspection issue, but again, hard to comment on specifics. 
Uh, what I can tell you, though, is that there's an overwhelming majority of per capita injuries on water slides. And uh, the, according to the stats, about 4% of the time it's mechanical-related. Uh, the other 94% of uh, injuries at amusement parks are because of user error. So, you know, people who are maybe standing up on water slides or who are, uh, you know, tricking the height requirement, standing on tippy-toes to try and get past, mm. uh, because oftentimes those restraints are simply meant to hold someone, say, five foot or taller. So someone four foot eleven could easily slip through that, and that's where you see the injuries occur. Wow. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I, I don't want to talk about anything specific because I'm sure it's incredibly safe, but uh, my daughter took me on the Leviathan at Wonderland, and I'm wondering how we all got out alive. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I sit and I, and, you know, I look at her with her hands in the air and not even hanging on to anything. And, uh, and can we be reassured as parents that, you know, when your kid goes up to one of those that, uh, you know, somebody's making sure that they, that they've got it, uh, you know, that they're buckled in right and that, that, uh, everything is the way it's supposed to be. Absolutely. You know, the, the important thing, Scott, is that these amusement parks all want the same thing as we do. They want you to have fun. They want you to have a good time. And they don't want you to be injured because if you're injured, you won't be coming back. And, you know, it's, it's a bad look for them, of course. So ultimately, everyone here wants the same thing. Uh, so if you are a parent and you are uh, sending your kids uh, off to, onto one of these rides or even off whatever, uh, what advice would you give them? What would you suggest to, you know, h- how do you stay safe at one of these parks? The number one most important thing that any parent can instill on their child or can do themselves if they're going to an amusement park is to follow the instructions, follow the directions. You know, any kind of safety recommendation at all is there for a reason. And whether it involves, you know, not going underneath a track to try and retrieve a lost hat or uh, sitting tight and not standing up on a ride, any safety recommendation at all is meant to be followed. And if you do that, you'll have a great time. Uh, what can you t- uh, is in specific to that uh, height and weight? I mean, you know, I've you know uh, my kids try tried to do it all the time. You know as well, uh, you know, trying to get on rides that they weren't supposed to get on. Talk about how important it is to obey those height and weight restrictions. Well, you know, it, it's human nature, right? You get told you don't, you can't do something, and your mind immediately jumps to watch me. Yeah. But in these kind of situations, it's so important to follow these because, as I mentioned, the uh, the rides are often designed with those minimal height and weight restrictions in mind. So if you're not adhering to those requirements, then the seat's not designed for you, meaning you may slip underneath the restraint or you may not be able to click the restraint down fully. Um, all these things can lead to injury, whether it's whiplash or hitting your head against the side of one. Uh, so in all these cases, as much as it sucks to not be able to ride the ride you want to ride, it sucks even more to be injured and not be able to enjoy the rest of your day. When something like this happens, does this uh, make operators uh, even more diligent, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Nobody wants to see any kind of injury at an amusement park at any point. So as soon as this does happen and it starts getting in the news, uh, there's much more strict um, you know, adherence to the regulations, adherence to the uh, 
to the minute things that need to be done to make sure that things are safe. When will we know more on this? When will we know the results? Whenever the inspection group comes out. I, I wish I had more info, but I'm in the same boat as you are on this one. Lewis Smith has been with us, Communications and Media Coordinator, Canadian Safety Council, talking about uh, the deadly incident that happened at the Ohio State Fair and how the ride, the fireball, has been uh, pulled from most major uh, uh, parks and, and uh, fairs coming up in Ontario. Lewis, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Early today, the U.S. Senate rejected the skinny repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Senator John McCain, who was recently, of course, diagnosed with brain cancer, and two others were the ones that held out. Uh, What happens now? Let's bring in Scott Greer, Professor of Global Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and he is with us now. Hello, Scott. How are you today? Fine. Glad to be with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. Why couldn't Donald Trump get his own party to vote for this? Let me turn the question around. We have an astonishingly unpopular bill, one of the most unpopular major pieces of legislation in the history of polling. Most Republicans, including practically all the senators, say it's badly constructed. Practically everyone says the procedure that they've been using is appalling. And yet we're genuinely surprised, we're genuinely surprised that there's this cliffhanger and it fails by one vote. Uh, I don't think I'm surprised at all uh, because nothing has seemed to get through. Uh, I'm just (laughs) stunned that when this all started, it was about having a majority and it certainly doesn't act like a government that has a majority. No, partly because what's going on is that you... Let me put it this way. The... American parties aren't accustomed to acting like proper organized political parties that take discipline. You Mm. expect this sort of cliffhanger and this sort of individual politician deciding what they're going to do while the whole country watches the drama. But the fact that they've managed to have enough party discipline to get this bill anywhere near where it got is actually what's kind of stunning from a U.S. perspective. Hmm, interesting. So what happens now? Uh, it seems that, he, that the president is just willing to step back and, and take his hands off the wheel and see where it ends up. Well, we don't know how much they're going to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. There's a lot of ways that the government can sabotage the ACA, the Obamacare, if they want to ranging from messing with the insurance markets to not enforcing the mandate that requires people to buy health insurance. And Trump's rather destructive point of view seems to be that I'm going to help the help Obamacare fall apart, and then that'll force Democrats to take responsibility for fixing it for me. The problem is there's no way that's going to happen. He can make it fall apart, but Democrats and most of the public are going to blame him. Uh, it does seem odd that he's uh, looking to the other side uh, of the floor for, for help on this when he's having trouble convincing his own people uh, to get on board. Uh, is there a, a, an easier solution here? Uh, is this being made more complicated than what it is? Or as uh, President Trump said, it's a lot more difficult than he thought it would be. It's definitely more difficult than he thought it would be. It's, you know, Getting on a fifth of the American economy and tens of millions of people and they tried to write legislation at lunch. I'm a professor. I've graded a lot of papers written in two hours. It doesn't end well. Hmm. What's the core problem is that Republicans don't have a counterproposal. So they ran on things like high deductible payments on the insurance and narrow networks where you don't get to go to a hospital of your choice. And the problem is every proposal they've got saves public money 
by raising deductibles, lowering the quality of insurance, limiting the number of providers that you can use, and so forth. So there's kind of a fundamental contradiction that the Republican health policy, policy sales and Republican health policy ideas go in absolutely opposite directions. And that's not a problem you can save with better legislative drafting or a mastery of detail. It's They've stuck themselves on this spit. Uh, it seems to be more anti-Obama than anything. Surprising, considering they've had so long to work on this, they don't have a plan or a better plan? There's practically all of American politics. The Republican plan is to try and undo what Obama did. And even if, even if that were a good idea, you can't undo something once the entire healthcare sector or the entire Middle East or whatever policy area you're talking about has adapted to something that's been the, the law for eight years. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's tough to put those genies back in the bottle. What are the pros and cons? What could be saved from this? What needs to be adjusted in, in Barack Obama's initial plan? There's a lot of technical things that could be adjusted to make Obamacare work the way it is supposed to, mostly to do with sort of how insurance companies manage risk, how subsidies work, and so forth. Uh, it's administrative. It's pretty dull. But it, you could make a very constructive little bill of the sort that used to get passed all the time. If you think that Obamacare is a travesty from the right, then you have no way to come up with something that you like ideologically but will also sell because it involves taking insurance away from people. There's a lot of Democrats who are saying, given the total failure of our effort to do a bipartisan bill under Obama with Republicans, we need to start talking about something that looks a lot more Canadian. So uh, was Obamacare a good idea? Where was it flawed in the beginning? What, if, if, if you had to do over, what would you change? Is it a good starting point? It's a good starting point in the sense that it's progress over what we had. If you look at all the rich countries of the world combined, places as distinctive as Japan and Poland and the United Kingdom and Australia... In every single country, the reason they can control health costs while getting everybody covered is that there's ultimately a place where the buck stops. Somebody is buying the health care. There is a single banker at the back of it, and it's usually the government. And the U.S. doesn't have that, which means the entire system is built on trying to make profits and dump the costs on someone else. If you can get around that, if you can establish some ultimate banker, such as Canadian governments or the English NHS or German insurance funds, then actually you can start to have a very rational health system quickly. You talked about Canada's system. Is it viewed as utopian down there? Because again, up here, many would question that. Um, you know, here locally in Hamilton, we've got a situation where uh, our local health care system ha- has had to put up with uh, extreme budget cuts and such. Uh, how is our system viewed by the U.S.? It depends on your politics. So Democrats talk up the awesomeness of Canada in terms of what's still a high level of rationality and low cost. And Republicans portray as a sort of hell where, you know, you die in the emergency room over after two years of waiting for cancer treatment. Hmm. We don't, to be honest, politicians in most countries aren't really interested in the reality of other countries. So Canada is a rhetorical prop. So like anything, when it's in favor of your argument, you use it. When it isn't, you don't. And if lying helps, well, how many Americans really know their way around the Ontario health system? Uh, what, is, is there anything you can learn from the Canadian model and do better? I think 
once you imitate the Canadian model or, you know, the British or the French or the Dutch, you can start to actually rationally address problems. What American health policy people love when we go abroad is you can actually sit and have a rational conversation about, for example, how to keep old people in their homes instead of having them end up in a hospital with a broken hip, or a rational conversation about how to make sure diabetics never have to have an amputation. And in the U.S., we're stuck going around and around in circles talking about how to pay for things. So there's a whole world of rationality that opens up when you actually have a system as against a competitive and heavily subsidized industrial sector, which is what the U.S. has gotten appears set to keep. Is this problem with health care in the United States solvable? Uh, is politics, will politics ever get out of the way? It'll never get out of the way. Um, but there's a, the difference is that we don't have accountability, right? So it's not, you can't go to Donald Trump and say, my failure to get treatment for my ankle is down to you. Whereas in Canada, you know, if you don't like your health care, you go after your premier and you tell him about it in the next election. We're never going to get politics out of healthcare because it costs too much and it's too important. But what you can do is change how the politics work. I'm sure there's people in Hamilton right now who are very aware of the budget cuts and plan to make their opinions known at the next election. So what is on the horizon for healthcare in the United States? Uh, Mitch McConnell says it's time to move on. Um, what happens next? There's a very... One is this thing is a zombie, right? I think we've stuck it in the ground five times now since Trump was elected. So, you know, the problem with zombies is they're hard to kill. Hmm. The second thing, in 11 days, we have to reauthorize the children's health insurance program. So we're going to have another huge conversation about public expenditure on health care. Then they're going to do a budget, which potentially means we have another huge conversation about the Medicaid program and the CHIP program and how they operate. So... There's a sense in which this isn't going to go away because over and over again, Republicans would like to restrain the size of the state, and they're going to do that by trying to cut tax-financed health programs. How important, how significant was the vote of Senator John McCain in this, especially considering his recent diagnosis? Extremely. I mean, the man is intensely into drama, so there's a sense in which if he just said this three days ago, we wouldn't have had to go through any of this charade. Um, but the key thing is that McCain will almost certainly be dead before he has to run for election again, to be brutal. And the other two Republican senators who defected are in very specific places that mean they're not subject to the ideological enforcement, to the party discipline of the other Republicans. So McCain was crucial. Murkowski from Alaska was crucial. But the important thing is to notice the number of Republicans who are very likely to lose their jobs in the next election because of this vote, and they voted for it. Uh, is McLean's, uh, does McCain's vote, sorry, uh, is it reflective of his feeling on health care, or is it, as been suggested, a, just a chance to turn the knife in Trump's back? McCain has a much longer history of being outraged about insults to him and the Senate than he does of having thoughts about health care. In that speech he gave right after voting for the motion to proceed, he basically got up and said that this is a procedural monstrosity, that this is not how American legislative process works. And arguably what he did early this morning was vote for the Senate to operate in a way more like he'd like it to operate. So does Obamacare just go bankrupt now? Is, is that what happens? 
Um, is this actually, no, no. does 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 anything happen until the hand is forced here? Well, if you don't have the government actively sabotaging it, it's going to continue to work fine. Um, on the sort of the two things that matter, which is people getting health care, good health care, and controlling the budget, Obamacare is working really quite well. So if the government decides to just stop talking about health care and run it properly, then you're not going to see it going bankrupt. The insurance markets are going to be fine, and the budgets are going to be tolerable. If the federal government, if the Trump administration starts taking its revenge by trying to destroy Obamacare, then you could indeed see the insurance markets start to collapse. And that's a high-stakes game where the key thing is, if you do it, who are the voters going to blame? Uh, is this more about the branding and less about the substance? It seems Trump. It seems Trump just wants to dis, you know uh, dis, uh, disassemble anything that Barack Obama has done, uh, even if it's a case of taking his health care plan and renaming it and putting it back on the shelf. Is that what we have here? I kind of wish Trump were that pragmatic. Um, I think Trump wants wins. I think that the donors of the Republican Party and a lot of the base want Obamacare dead. So the skinny bill, in a sense, was an effort to change a little bit of it and announce that they've won and do a victory dance and move on. And they can't even do that. So over and above... Anything but Obama... Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Anything but Obama seems to be the credo of the Trump administration. So... um... Where do, you know, obviously, uh, this leaves the health care system in question. Where does this leave the Republican Party? <laughs> Remember I said the amazing thing is that legislation this bad got this close and this unpopular. Forget about its quality and its effects. Just it's incredibly unpopular. The fact that it got within one vote of passage tells you that the Republicans are behaving very, very unusually. They've got a Canadian level of party discipline, but they've got no leadership. On one hand, you know, Canadian MPs vote essentially as they're told to, as they're whipped, but there's a party leadership that's making strategic decisions about how to win the next election. We've got the party discipline, but we don't have a leadership that's saying we need to put the brakes on this before we cost ourselves the next election. That's the predicament the Republicans are in. They've got the partisanship, but they haven't got the party discipline, the party unity. Uh, where, what do you think the Democrats should, should do? There was a recent poll last week that said the Democrats are spending, spending too much time throwing mud at Trump and should be spending more time on, you know, telling us what the thoughts of the new leader are, whoever that would be, uh, and telling the Clintons to move to the back burner and, and look forward to a new party. Uh, you know, at what point, uh, and I guess uh, Senator Schumer came out last week and said this was the week that they were going to start hammering that this is the new uh, Democrat. Party. Where do they stand on all of this? At what point do they take advantage of this? Because of the fixed election campaign, where in a sense there's no way they can take advantage of it until November of next year. Um, by the same token that we don't really get a referendum on Trump for another three and a half years. What Democrats can do is recruit good candidates and all over the country instead of just in Democratic-friendly places and keep the focus on policy, because we know from a lot of experience in other countries and in the United States that when you get a seriously deviant government, you let the judicial process do its thing, which is currently ongoing with Russia, 
and you hammer on the things that voters care about, because most voters aren't all that interested in politics. There's sports available, and sports are much more fun. Hmm. So you don't talk about the political process. You talk about, this man wants to take away your health care. I want to give you free college education. You talk issues. So do we really need Democrats throwing any more fuel on this fire? I mean, shouldn't they? You know, at the end of the day, what I find fascinating in all of this is that each one is blaming the other for the reason that they are where they are, when in fact it appears that that America didn't, and, and this is this is happening all over the world, uh, they don't want the status quo anymore. Uh, and rather than, you know, trying to give, uh, you know, Trump was supposed to be an alternative, uh, rather than the Democrats trying to provide an alternative, we're, 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 we're fighting in the swamp. Yeah, well, the way American parties work means that, you know, you don't really have a Democratic alternative until you have a Democratic alternative presidential candidate. Until then, what's going to happen is Democrats in Michigan will say one thing and Democrats in Arizona will say another thing. They'll still be recognizably Democrats, but there's no party leader that they have to fall in line behind the way Republicans are stuck with their president, whether they like him or not. And a lot of them don't. Can you get out of the swamp when you have a reality TV star from the New York tabloid culture practicing what he learned in worldwide wrestling as a president. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's sort of like, this is about like jumping up onto a professional wrestling stage and announcing we should get out of the swamp and do some proper Olympic Greco-Roman. Scott Greer has been with us, professor of global health management and policy at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Scott, fascinating discussion. Thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. Have a good one. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've all been following the story of the young Hamilton boy who had fallen ill in Cuba uh, while just about to get on the plane and come home. And then, of course, uh, he was deemed not fit to fly. And, uh, of course, then uh, the whole tale ensues. Uh, Let's bring in Nicole Antonello. She is the mother of Cole who, of course, uh, was still in hospital and hoping to come home uh, later tonight. Uh, Joining us is Nicole now. Hello, Nicole. How are you today? Um, I'm okay. I'm excited to get to the airport. (laughs) So uh, It's been a a long journey and a nightmare. So you are in Cuba right now, correct? We are in Cuba. We're at a hotel, actually. We're um, leaving here at 7 o'clock to go to the head to the airport. And how is Cole's health? How is he doing now? Um, Cole has had a upset belly for over 72 hours now still. He can't keep anything down, but the nurse did come see him this morning, and um, he's still clear to fly as he has no fever. He's just resting. So what has happened? Uh, how did this all start? <laughs> we um, He got a fever at the airport, um, the chills. He felt like he was going to throw up, uh, and the flight attendant brought on a doctor onto the plane before takeoff and he said that he was not fit to fly and took us off the plane and they ended up rushing us to a hospital, uh, Holguin Pediatric Hospital and um, he was uh, seen there. They did uh, blood work on him. He had high uh, red blood cell count and then he, um, uh, they were going to do a spinal tap on him, which they decided not to do. And then they ended up 24 hours later rushing him off for emergency surgery for his appendix. Uh, and so was he sick prior to getting to the airport? Did he show any signs of, of being ill? No, I have pictures on my phone of him like running around with this best friend that he met 
um, at the resort we were staying at um, just while we were just waiting for the bus and just minutes before we boarded the bus to go to the airport, and he was fine. Um, and then he just hit with fever and, and chills and, and felt like he was going to throw up. So this was prior to actually... No pain. He had no abdominal... Uh, so this was prior Sorry. to him boarding the airplane, correct? This is correct, yes. And so how sick was he when he actually tried to board the plane? He had a bag in hand. Um, he felt like he was going to throw up. Um, mm-hmm. He was really, really hot. His fever, they took his temperature, it was uh, 40 Celsius. Mm. And they said he couldn't get off the plane, or he had to get off the plane. They made us all get off, actually. My mom and my daughter flew home uh, Wednesday night, so they're at home in Caledonia now. So he was rushed to uh, the hospital, and then a day later, an appendectomy performed, correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, uh, um, he had no abdominal pain. That was kind of strange. Like, they don't have ultrasound machines or anything like we do in Canada. Um, us Canadians are very grateful for the healthcare um, equipment that we have for for our doctors and stuff. Um, so so not what, really sure. <laughs> so you're not really sure if he needed his appendix out? Well, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I had my appendix out a couple of years ago, and it was very painful. And mine didn't rupture until they were actually taking it out of me. So he wasn't—he didn't have no abdominal pain. He had an upset belly, but no, like you know, no complaints of pain. So how has he been since the surgery? He had a fever still three days after the surgery, and now he's got an upset belly still because he can't keep anything down. So I'm just keeping him hydrated. I'm first aid certified, so I mean, I'm, I'm keeping watch of the signs for dehydration, and I just want to get him on that flight. And the first thing that we're doing when we land is we're going to Toronto to Kids Hospital. So uh, do does the hospital know that you're arriving? Do they are, are doctors here aware of the scenario? Um, I'm pretty sh- well, I'm pretty sure that my doctor's office was supposed to get in touch with them. Um, I haven't been in touch with my family doctor since, but, uh, that was the plan. So what did your family doctor say about all of this? Well, I didn't get to speak to him personally. I spoke to, spoke to the receptionist and they said that we're for sure, they're for sure going to have, um, make sure he gets all the proper testing when he returns. Uh, but uh, um, but obviously, know, to <laughs> but they obviously couldn't give you any advice as to what do, what to do down in Cuba and his condition. No, they just said keep him hydrated. And um, I did talk, speak just prior to Cole going in for surgery. I did speak to a medical team through my insurance company, um, and they told me I had to go and follow the doctor's orders. Mm. Um, and then after surgery, my insurance was willing to send a doctor escort to come and escort Cole back to Canada. Um, in order to do that, the doctor here in Cuba had to sign off on it, and the, the doctor wouldn't sign off on it. So, How come? So we're still here. I, he, they said that he wasn't able to fly right. and um, that the air in the, in the plane, the, after surgery, you shouldn't fly for five to seven days right. after surgery. So yeah, the, is, the conditions we were in in the hospital was like a war zone. There was construction going on with dust flying everywhere and toilets overflowing, um, sewage in our room and and um, showers that wouldn't turn off. And it was just absolutely something I've never seen before. And you would never have guessed it to be a, a children's hospital. When did he get out of the hospital there? He got out on Tuesday. 
and now he's in, and well, he's no, been, actually Tuesday around noon. And so he's been recovering there at the hotel and then waiting to come home on a flight. That's correct. correct? That, that's correct. Yeah. Is he better yeah. now? Is he better now than he was when he was going to board the flight the first time? He is. Um, yeah. He he's better. He doesn't have a fever. Um, he's in good spirits, but he's not himself. <laughs> He's yeah. not the, you know, he's just kind of just laying around and just not uh, just unwell. In if, is this uh, is this normal for after having a, an appendix removed? I mean, is this standard procedure, or do you have reason to believe that he, there's still something wrong with him? Well, I, I the upset stomach concerns me because after I had my appendix out, I didn't have an upset stomach. Um, so it, it does concern me, um, but I know I have, a, I have faith in our, our medical back home in Canada that he'll be well taken care of. I'm, I'm well, I'm, I know Toronto Sick Kids Hospital well. My daughter's been in and out of there since she was two months old. She's now 16 and, um, I trust in that hospital. So, so, so you don't necessarily have a lot of faith in the treatment that he received in Cuba? No, I don't. You know what? And I, 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 don't get me wrong. They're probably great doctors here. It's just, it's, it's something I'm not used to, right? When I take my children to the hospital, I'm used to, you know, our health and safety standards and, you know, in place at the hospitals we go to. You know, like we were walking over half of walls to walk down the hallway to take him to go get weighed. Like it was just unreal. They didn't even have blood pressure cuffs or anything to check blood pressure or oxygen levels or anything like that. Hmm. Uh, so the rest of the family had gone home, and it's just you and Cole that are down there until ten thirty tonight. That's correct. Uh, so um, obviously, you can't wait to get him on Canadian soil now. I cannot wait. It's going to be it's going to be a little bit of a celebration, but then we'll go to to the hospital and get him fully checked before I take the hour and a half ride home to Caledonia. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, what what, what yeah. about the way you were treated? Uh, we hear, you know, stories about uh, getting sick in other countries, having the right insurance, this, that, or the other. Uh, what was that whole experience uh, you know, like? I've, I've heard, uh, are, you, are you referencing to the comments and stuff on online? Is that what you're referring to? No, I'm just asking you what your experience has been. Oh. Oh, okay. Um, we, uh, I've never had, I've never experienced this before, so it's been uh, an eye opener. I'm very lucky that I, and, and happy with myself that I purchased the insurance before we left. And it's, uh, I didn't know and ever look into what the hospital was were like in other countries, you know, and and, and how they really lived. I just kind of. When, you, when we went to the on vacation, it was more, what's the resort like? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where we're going to be staying in, sure. for a week, you know? So, so it's, been, it's been a nightmare. So uh, advice to other parents who are about to take the family on a trip, what, what can you learn from this? Um, I would say look into getting the any kind of shots um, or vaccines for, I guess, um, I think it's that... I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. It's something that you can buy in uh, Shoppers Drug Mart to take, but um, and also make sure you purchase medical insurance um, and are aware of the, um, you know, the conditions of where you're traveling to and and how how the locals and that live and have to 
What what about costs? What about costs, Nicole? Will you be reimbursed for what this will cost you? Well, I'm being reimbursed um, for some of it, um, not all of it. Um, but uh, the there was a GoFundMe page set up by my best friend Lori, and she um, that is going to help huge. And if there's anything left over from it, um, I told Cole that he can donate it to any charity of his choice. So. So how is Cole's spirits right now, knowing that he's, uh, what, you board your plane at 10.30? The flight leaves at 10.30, rather? Yeah, he's excited. He can't wait. When we woke up this morning, he's like, Mommy, we get to go home today. <laughs> so he's looking forward to it, and I promised to buy him um, the Nerf gun of his choice when better than able to get into a, into, a, into a toy store, so, yeah. Does he seem to be improving, Nicole, over time, or is he just the same? Uh, he's just been the same since we got here. About a few, few hours after we got arrived at the hotel here, he's been about the same. Uh, do yeah. you have any concerns traveling with him at this point? No, I think he should be fine to fly. Um, like he's not, he doesn't have a heat fever, and he is hydrated, so um, he should be okay to touch ground. How long? How long's your flight? Do you know? Um, we touched. Uh, we landed in Toronto at two fifteen in the morning. All right, uh, Nicole. Well, good luck to you. Uh, we're thinking about you, and and hopefully safe travels. And uh, you'll get this all figured out once you get cold down on Ontario soil. Good luck to you. Thank you so much, and thank you to everybody out there listening who supported us and prayed for us. Nicole, Nicole Antonello has been with his mother of Cole, and of course, Cole, the young Hamilton boy who fell ill at Cuba, had to go uh, through an appendectomy, and uh, still maybe something uh, of concern that uh, Mother Nicole is going to check out as soon as he touches down here. Thanks very much, Nicole, for the time. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.